0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 32. This is the word of God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart.
1: Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the book of Psalms, a book of worship where we can look at how you love to be worshipped, look at the words of, uh, of many men who came before us in frustration, in praise, in celebration. Lord, we thank you for this book, and we pray that you would apply this morning's teaching to our hearts with your spirit. In your son's name we pray, Amen. In 1843, there was a, an American poet. His name was Edgar Allan Poe. He wrote uh, a number of things. He wrote The Raven, which is a wonderful thing to read on Halloween. It's not nearly as scary as it was then. Um, but he, uh, he published a, a short story called The Tell-Tale Heart. And The Tell-Tale Heart is a story of a man who's so disturbed by his own feelings of guilt that he confesses his heinous crime to the police with almost no prodding. They barely started their questioning, and he just blurts out that he did it. The man in the story lived next door to a half-blind man, and one of his eyes was kind of glassed over. And his glassy eye disturbed the main character so much that he hatches a plan to not have to look at his eye any longer. And you might think, well, maybe he gave him an eye patch, or uh, maybe he moved from his tenement. But um, no, he decides to kill the man, uh, so he wouldn't have to look at his half-blind neighbor any longer. Um, he decides that's the best course of action. He, does it, he plans it very uh, rationally. And um, as rationally as you can reach an, an unrational conclusion... Um, and the, the short story is told as if it were his, uh, his statement during trial, uh, when maybe he was confused, or maybe his lawyer was trying to convince the jury that he was uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, but he's, he insists he is not insane, and he um, calmly describes the incident. So the, the police arrive in the story, and they begin to interview him, as I said, and they interview him in the very room where, where uh, the man was killed. And uh, the, the, uh, the main character's chair that he's sitting in is on the floor planks beneath which he has buried his neighbor. And during the interview, he's, he's being very calm. During the interview, he starts to hear a sound. And he describes it as a ringing. And the, the sound kind of starts out dull, and then it gets louder and louder. And he looks at the police and says, Can't you hear that sound? And they say, No. And it gets louder and louder, and it drives him crazy, and he finally he blurts out, he, 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 uh, he decides, "Well, this is, this is the beating of the man's heart. He's right there under the floor planks. Dig him up, get him out of here." because he couldn't bear the ringing sound any longer. And that ringing was the guilt that he had from killing his neighbor. Guilt can do very powerful things. To a person, and uh, this is why David, the psalmist who wrote today's passage, says what he says. Look at uh, uh, verses eight through ten and one and two again. I will instruct you; I will instruct you and, and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed by bit and bridle, or it won't stay with you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit, for they will hear no ringing in their ears. Point one in your outline is the problem of guilt is serious. Taking a step back here, historically, this is going to help for some context. After Israel had conquered Canaan, you remember Moses led them out of the promised land. Moses couldn't enter the promised land because of his disobedience. Joshua leads them into the promised land. And during that time, as they were conquering and settling and they dividing up the lands, as is told in the book of Joshua, um, there, there wasn't a king. And there wasn't one federal head over... The, the federal head over Israel was God. And they didn't have a human, you know, one leader. It was, it was Joshua that kind of coordinated things. But he, he didn't have a... He wasn't king. He wasn't a judge. And so each of the, each of the 12 tribes were kind of governing themselves. But when they were threatened by neighboring nations, God would rise up a judge, uh, raise up a judge among them, to unite them, to organize them, and to lead them into battle, to deliver them. Now, these were, again, largely military leaders. There wasn't a lot of moral authority that these judges had. Um, and after they delivered Israel, the judges were completely ignored. Um, they weren't uh, listened to, they weren't given any attention. and Israel almost immediately fell back into idolatry, um, for which they, they came to see, for which God was punishing them throughout the, uh, their, the cycles that we see in the book of Judges. At the end of the book of Judges, Israel has completely devolved into worshippers of the Canaanite gods, The people cry out to the high priest and now the final judge, Samuel, who was the adult in the room at the time, and they said, look, we want to be like the other nations in our area. Okay? We want to have a king. It's ridiculous that we don't have a king. We have these judges pop up, and what they, what's hidden in this statement is that God is not our king. And so Samuel says, well, you're... Well, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll go ask. So he asks God and and God says obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they've not rejected you but they've rejected me from being king over them. Let them have what they want. Maybe with a king Israel would remember God's law. You never know. The high priest Samuel ended up being the last judge as I mentioned and he went out and anointed the first king of Israel who as you remember, was Saul. Saul became king and did a fine job for a little while. But he, as king, not as high priest, as king made sacrifices instead of Samuel before a battle because he couldn't wait for Samuel. He was not allowed. Kings were not allowed to make sacrifices. That was the job of the high priest. Then he took the Ark of the Covenant out of the tent of meeting and into battle, which, surprise, surprise, they lost the battle and the ark was stolen. It wasn't a weapon, by the way, as they thought it might be. And then Saul disobeyed a direct order from God to completely wipe out the Amalekites when they came into conflict. And he kept the best of the Amalekite spoils for himself and his men. And then they were taunted by the Philistine champion, Goliath. And a shepherd boy came up, and his whose brothers were there. A shepherd boy, as you know, is David. And he said, well, give me, a, give me some weapons, and I'll, I'll defeat this guy. He can't say those things that he's saying about my God. So he gets up with a slingshot, and with God's help and direction, he defeats Goliath. After this, King Saul makes him a musician in his court. And then Saul tries to kill him countless times. <laughs> he throws spears at him across the room that David miraculously jumps out of the way of. And Then he's chasing him through the wilderness for years. And during those wilderness wanderings uh, is when, he, when many of the Psalms were written. Eventually, as you know, David became king after Saul was killed in battle. And today we're studying the psalm that David wrote, Psalm 32. Now, David is famously remembered for killing Goliath with a slingshot. He's remembered for writing many psalms, as I said. He's, he's remembered for being the second king of Israel. He's remembered for being a, an ancestor to Jesus. He's, he was described as a man after God's own heart, and that's how That's how we remember David. But as Ben mentioned, he's also remembered for his affair with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was a commander in in David's army. Now, David should have been off making war. Um, But he, with his two wives, decided to stay home. And he was relaxing on the rooftop and saw Bathsheba and decided to have an affair. So Bathsheba gets pregnant. And David said, well, that's not good. That's going to reveal... This happened when Uriah was off fighting, so it's going to be obvious that it wasn't his. So he said, well, if Uriah likes to fight so much, let's send him to the front lines. And he intentionally puts him in danger, and Uriah dies, which is as close as you could get to an attenuated murder. So, this man after God's own heart, as we learn, and as we remember with, with such fondness, the kingship of David, and as it's referred to throughout Scripture, and he's tied to the lineage of Jesus, this guy is the one who commits adultery, commits murder, and somehow we still remember him as a great king. So what's the difference between David and Saul? What's the difference between David and Abimelech, this evil judge that we see? What's the difference between David and Micah and Jephthah and all these other judges who were evil judges? I mean, there were some good judges. Deborah was a great judge, and we see some other ones. But these, there were some evil, evil judges who... Just did abominable things. So, what's the difference between David and these others? Let's let's find out. So, first, as we've heard a couple times already, the psalmist wants us to pay attention here because he's, he's calling attention to this, this is important. The principles in this psalm are important. He says, Don't be stubborn. Don't be like a stupid animal. Listen to this, it's important. Animals can't sin or confess, and they have to be steered every way they go. We must deal with the guilt that our consciences bear sooner or later. Blessed is the man whose guilt is dealt with, whose sin is forgiven. They're blessed because their guilt has been dealt with. David's guilt was dealt with. Another way to say blessed is happy. Happy is one whose guilt is dealt with and whose sin is forgiven. Author Jen Wilkin has said there are two ways to escape feelings of guilt about your sin. One way is to repent. The other is to repeat. The other is to repeat the sin over and over again until you no longer feel remorse. That is a dangerous thing to do to quench your conscience. Guilt is a tremendous blessing in itself, but it's also a huge obstacle. You know, it's at the root, guilt is at the root of what the apostle Paul was saying in Romans 12 when he wrote about the the law being a curse that points us to our real problem, sin. The law is our tutor, he wrote elsewhere, and and points us to the fact that nobody could possibly keep the whole law and achieve perfect holiness and as a result all of us have broken the law we've, we've, we're, we're guilty and this is true of the moral law written on our hearts which is our conscience the very principles of natural law that we have inside we feel guilty because we are guilty you know there isn't a good explanation in secular psychology about why we feel guilt. If you can't tie guilt to a specific instance of a socially acceptable behavior that, that maybe you've breached, if you can't say, well, anybody would have done that in, in my circumstance, you can justify just about anything in your life, but there's still guilt there. And there's not a good explanation for why. You know, it, a popular psychologist might say that, well, uh, maybe guilt is, is something that we no longer need. Maybe it served a purpose in some earlier generation. But like our appendix and our tonsils, we can jettison guilt without consequence. But this is what sets David apart from his predecessors. He confessed. Psalm 51 is what sets David. David apart. He repented and he knew what it was to be forgiven. Okay, point number two in your outline is the products of confession are manifold. How do we deal with our guilt? How do we get rid of it? There's only one way to truly get rid of your guilt and that's confession, as I said. It's a necessary practice because it produces a few things. Produces Three things. The first thing is that it produces catharsis. Now, catharsis is this term for resolving an unresolved emotional state. It's, go, it's attending the burial of a friend who has died. It's scattering their ashes. It closes the door. It's closure. Catharsis is that feeling that you get when you resolve an unresolved emotional state. When the emotional state is guilt, and that guilt points to some wrong, and those guilty feelings can be brought to a close when you confess. And that's what we saw in the telltale heart. The murderer couldn't keep it secret that he murdered his neighbor. He had to tell because his conscience was ringing in his ears. The ringing went away when he confessed. It produced catharsis. So confession also has to result in something, though. And this is, a, this is an important point. Catharsis isn't always enough. It doesn't just feel good to just say, yes, I did the thing. We need it to leave, lead to forgiveness. If we confess something wrong we've done and it's not forgiven, if you say, hey, friend, I'm so sorry I did that thing, and they said, Yeah, me too. I don't forgive you. The product is shame. If we're forgiven, then we enjoy the freedom from guilt, the freedom from shame. And that's what we have in Jesus. There is no shame in the Christian life. There is guilt, there is confession, and there is forgiveness. Amen. Turn with me to John 13. This is an important passage that illustrates the importance of confession. John 13. <clears throat> Ask your forgiveness for the length of this quote. If you don't forgive me, I will feel shame. (laughs) Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, rose from supper. This was the last supper. They were together. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he was that he had wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head also. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, referring to Judas here. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said not all of you are clean. This is a familiar passage where the God of the universe does something shocking, and that's why we remember it. He takes the posture of the lowest servant. I mean, most of, this, most of the household servants would not do this task. You either do it yourself, or if you're super rich and you have some you know, really lowly slave who did something terrible, and they're trying to you know, work their way back into shining your, you know, your sandals or something, This is what you had them do. It was disgusting. So Jesus washes their feet as an example to us, as he said. Now, he's he's saying, as a teacher and a leader, we must never feel like we're too good for the menial tasks if others will be blessed by them. It's not above the pastors of a church to get down and dirty with someone, and to get the work done, even if it's gross. A servant is not greater than his master, he goes on to say. And if our master acted as the lowest servant, then we better follow his example. Okay, great. Well, what does this have to do with confession? One commentator has pointed out that the second thing that Jesus is teaching here is that we must confess our sins to each other. You're checking the text right now for confess, I can tell. It's not there. (laughs) Look what he does when he says to Peter, when Peter almost refuses the foot washing, he says, no, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Um, And if Jesus were just making an example for humble leadership, that would seem like a strange thing to say. So Peter responds, well, not only my feet, but my hands and my head also. Peter's thinking, well, maybe this is a new liturgy. Maybe this is something that we're supposed to do going on. Maybe there's uh, some a ritual purification uh, uh, that, we're, that we're supposed to take care of. He had just instituted the Lord's Supper, you know, 20 minutes before. But Jesus tells him he's clean already. He doesn't have to wash his hands, his hands and his head Again, because he's already bathed. And then he says, not all of you are clean. What is he talking about? He's talking about Judas. He says, the eleven were clean because they believed in him. They put their faith and trust in Jesus and they followed him. Judas, as we know, famously betrayed Jesus. And he was the one who was not clean. So this must be a teaching about salvation. He must be saying something about salvation here. Listen to this closely. As the disciples walked around the polluted streets of Jerusalem, their sweaty feet would get caked with the dust that would get kicked up, at the very least. At worst, droppings were all over the place. These were dirt roads, and there were animals all over the place. So this could be a really grimy task, as I mentioned. As they arrived to a home, and especially to the altar to take the Lord's Supper. As they arrive, they must wash all that muck off their feet. So it is with our days in the polluted streets of this world. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, head to toe. But we still walk around the dirty, grimy streets of this sinful, fallen world. And it rubs off on us. We can't help it. We're broken. We sin. And the feet of our spirits get caked with mud. Sometimes it's just a little bit of dust. But sometimes we really step in it. Before we approach the Lord's table each week, at the very least, we need to confess our sins then and come clean in our relationship to God. So how are we to wash our feet regularly? Brothers and sisters, you are to wash each other's feet. Make time to get together, brother and brother, sister and sister, to confess to one another. Get together one-on-one or in a small confidential group. It's important that it's confidential. And wash each other's feet by inviting confession and reminding each other of forgiveness in the cross of Christ. Listen to James 5:16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is the cornerstone of one anothering, of being brothers and sisters in Christ together in a community. It's how we were made to function together. Brothers and sisters, join a home group. Talk to Ben and get in one. Invest in someone you can be completely transparent with. Get some men or women together of your same of your sex, certainly no more than 12 was the model here, and wash each other's feet. This doesn't just have to be a time for confession. But like James writes, we should pray for each other. And how can we pray for each other without knowing what's going on in each other's lives? This is what the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about in his seminal book about Christian community life together. The principles in that book are many, but have been helpfully distilled by Ray Ortland. Confession is our breakthrough to experiencing real brotherhood. And sisterhood. But sin wants to keep a person isolated, withdrawn, and alone. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive their sin becomes. By confession, the light of the gospel can shine into his or her dark places. When a person finally surrenders and opens up, their sin begins to weaken. The friend receiving their brother's or sister's confession starts bearing with them in their sin. Bearing their sin with them. Now both the friend and the confessor are honest sinners in deep brotherhood and sisterhood. A person living in ongoing confession will never be alone again. This is fundamental. It is critical that you do this, that you confess at least to God and please to someone else. If you've put your faith and trust in God, you are clean. You don't need to be washed again. But we still live in a fallen and sinful world inside a fallen and sinful body with a broken heart. And you need to wash this world off your feet regularly. Another wonderful function of the confession of sin is that it protects us from judgment. When we first put our faith in Jesus and trust in his sacrifice, when we say, yes, Jesus, I'm guilty of sin, and I deserve just punishment for my sin, and you took that just punishment for me on the cross, and I want to belong to you and for my sin to be taken away by your act of substitution on the cross for me. When we say that, we are cleansed, head to toe. We're protected from eternal judgment. Look at verse 7 of our passage. It refers to eternal judgment. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him who has confessed. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The rush of great waters here in verse 7, it's a reference to the waters of judgment that consumed the sinful world in the worldwide flood experienced by Noah. It's also a reference to the waters of the Red Sea that allowed the Israelites through to the other side while the Egyptians were crushed by those same waters while they were in pursuit. We can also see waters of judgment in in the book of Jonah. When Jonah is on the boat with the other sailors running away in the exact opposite direction of where it was supposed to go and there's a huge storm that hits his boat and they cast lots to figure out who's at fault for this storm, a bit superstitious but God used that. And it says Jonah, so they throw him overboard into the waters of judgment. He was there for I think 40 days before he rose up out of the waters of judgment, like Noah in the Red Sea, or like the Israelites in the Red Sea, and like Noah in his ark, they rose up out of the waters of judgment. Also a picture of immersive water baptism. Like Jonah, we sit under righteous judgment for our rebellion against God. But when we confess, as Jonah did, in the belly of the whale and repent of our rebellion. We are saved from the waters of judgment, as the psalmist points out. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Verse 6, I'm sorry. Also, our confession, our confession and the resulting forgiveness restores relationship. So it, confession produces catharsis, it protects us from judgment, and it restores relationship. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, though, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the iniquity. There was no shame here. There was no, yeah, you're right, you're wrong, and you sinned. There was no shame. There was forgiveness. And it restored his relationship. Withholding confession and failing to acknowledge the wrong that you've done has physical, emotional, and psychological and spiritual impacts. It impacts every sphere of our person. We must confess our sin and not just once. We must initially confess that we are sinners and accept Jesus' sacrifice and become cleansed that first time and proclaim our salvation from God through water baptism to the community. But we must continue to confess our sins and constantly lay them before God and frequently before each other so that we can enjoy the peace of God in our lives. Confession produces catharsis. It saves us from judgment. It brings us closer to our brothers and sisters and to God. The final point in your outline is the methodology of confession is simple. Look at verse 6 of our passage here. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. There will be a time when it is too late to confess. We only have our lifetimes to do it, first of all. And who knows when your life will end? We've got a global pandemic going on in year three coming up. More and more people are are passing away unexpectedly. And we don't know the time of Jesus' return. This is the golden age where we have all of scripture put together in a book. It's on every electronic device that plugs into the wall almost. And we have the opportunity to find forgiveness. This is the golden age of history. The first step is confession. I I already mentioned the need to get into a home group or get together with a group of A group of men or women, even at the minimum, just with the intention to listen to each other and confess and, and wash each other's feet without judgment in a confidential setting. With that understood, let's see how we can confess to God. What does that look like? Turn with me to Psalm 51. This is the psalm, Has been noted, as we've talked about before. This, this was written after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. She became pregnant, and he, he then killed her husband. This is what he wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was, I was even brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. He's saying, don't lie to yourself. And teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. When you clean me, I will be clean, is what he's saying. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. You will do it. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Here's what we sang earlier Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Verse 13 is fulfilled in your hearing this morning, by the way. And each time we read this. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. But no, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Foreshadowing the, the going away of the sacrificial system and our direct relationship with God right there. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. He's saying, build your church. Then you'll delight in right sacrifices. In in eternity, in burnt sacrifice and whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. He has this picture of God receiving the right worship. And the vehicle vehicle is, is through confession. David either had a tremendous amount of hubris to write this psalm or he knew that God would welcome his confession. How many times have we heard someone say, well, you know, God will forgive the little stuff but not the stuff I've done. You don't know what I've done. Did you murder someone? And then try to and and to cover up some other thing that you did by cheating on your wife. There's worse than that, but not a lot. This is how we confess what what David has put here: admit you were wrong, be specific, accept responsibility, don't make excuses. That's what he's saying. And, you delight in truth in the inward being. Don't make excuses. Don't try to lessen what you've done. Own up to it. Acknowledge that it's wrong and ask for forgiveness. Listen, if you've got something that you're keeping secret, something you don't want anyone to know, something you haven't even acknowledged to God, do your whole self a favor and acknowledge and confess that thing to God. And if there's a close friend, a brother or sister who can get together with you confidentially go find them and unburden yourself to them. If you don't have a friend who you can do this with but you still really want to talk to somebody email pastors at orchardbible.org and our pastors will be more than happy to meet with you confidentially and help you through this. Look, Do this knowing that you cannot be forgiven what you don't confess. Do this with the promise that we have in our passage. Blessed be the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed, or happy, is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, And might I say, trust in the Lord's forgiveness. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. You have forgiveness. And once you get it, there's nothing that will stop you from rejoicing and enjoying that lightness of spirit. We (laughs) We can be free of guilt. We can be... We can have a clean conscience. We can have healing from the damage that sin has done in our lives. It's because God took the form of a human servant and died as the substitute for us. He took our punishment and our judgment on himself so we could enjoy life without guilt, without shame, in a life characterized by joy. Don't let the sin in your life keep ringing in your ears. Confess to God and to each other. By now you've probably discovered, and I think I mentioned what set David apart from those other kings and judges. It was confession. He lived Psalm 51 so we could enjoy Psalm 32. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you promised to us when we confess to you. We don't have the same promise when we sin against our brothers and sisters that they will accept our apology, that they will grant us forgiveness. We don't have that same promise with, with everyone. But Lord, we have that promise with you. We can bank on that. When we confess our sin to you, you will forgive us and there will be no shame. Lord, go with us today and this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen.